The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God has commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early on the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And she sat opposite him. She lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the, of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the, vo- the voice of the boy where he is. Up! Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time... Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants has seed, has seed seized. Abimelech said, I do not know what has done this, who has done this thing. You do not tell me, and I have not heard it until today. So Abraham who took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs on the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of those seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, the place was called Beersheba, because there were both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant of Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the army, rose up and returned to the land of Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
Good morning. We've got a lot of work to do today. As you can tell, it's a long text, all kind of stuff going on. Um, two of the most controversial topics probably in all of the Bible, in church history at least, or at least recent church history. And we get to, talk, we get to tackle both of them today. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. We're going to jump in. We need God's grace. We need faith. We need His Spirit here to lead and guide us. So, Father... I thank you for the gathering of your people. I thank you um, for the confidence that I can have as I stand up here and proclaim your word this morning that you um, preceded us before we came together. Uh, You woke us up this morning that every single person in this room can be thankful um, to the God of all creation, the everlasting God, that you woke us up this morning and you give us breath even now. And Father, you woke us up and you pulled us together and you gathered us as your people here in this building. Some of us are here for the first time. Some of us are outsiders looking in. Some of us have been here a long time and we're thankful. We're thankful to the God of the Bible for for waking us up and for bringing us in. We're thankful for you giving us your eternal word. Father, I ask today that we would take a humble position, that we would say God's word trumps my word. God's word trumps my opinions. God's word trumps what I want to be true. And that your word would be the standard for reality for us. That your word would be what it is. Father, you said to Moses, you are, you, I am what I am. I pray that you would be here and be present in that way today. That your sovereignty, your power would be unquestionable today. That we would feel completely separate and completely distant and different from you. That we would see your holiness. We would see your, your omniscience, your, your all-knowing that you are so far above us and so superior to us. What is man that we should try to counsel God? I pray that our wisdom would look like foolishness today that our pride would be humbled today and we would stand in awe of the power, of the majesty, of the glory of the great God. Father, I ask that you would think through my mind, that you would speak through my vocal cords, that you would hear through our ears, that you would give us hearts of faith to believe for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. If you are new to Sacred City Church, I'd like to welcome you to our Sunday gathering. We really are pleased that you're worshiping with us this morning, and we hope that you stick around to get a little more involved. Um, just a, a, a couple of things real quick. Number one, we're having, whoa, we're having a good Friday service. So that will be here. You can find out all the details on the city. Invite your friends. It's a very dark service. Um, it's called the Service of Shadows, if you've never been to it. Um, it's really moving, meaningful. Um, I love it. All the kids will be in here. It'll be a great, it'll be a great night. And then obviously Easter Sunday. This is a season where a lot of people come back to church. Um, maybe they've been gone. You know, maybe they, you know, they just don't go to church, period. It's a good season in our culture to invite people to your missional community, invite people back to church. Um, for those of us who call Sacred City your home, we ask that during the season, especially, you would park behind the the villages over here, behind these these buildings. And not in the front parking lot right out here. Don't park out here. Leave these open for our visitors so they have a, so if they get here five minutes late, they have a place to park. 
Okay? Please, make the sacrifice, park behind the buildings, and, and, and walk under, uh, under the porchways here to our gathering. And then also, on Easter, if we do, uh, if we do need it, the, 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 balcony, the balcony, of course, will be open. So that's pretty much that's all I wanted to say today. I'm um, at Sacred City. If this is your first time here, we think that the Bible is, up, is of the utmost importance. So we work verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. And right now we're in the book of Genesis. And we're going to be here until the fall of this year. The book of Genesis is basically made up of two big chunks. The first chunk is... That's a theological term there. The first chunk is chapters 1 through 11. They cover creation. Okay? And the second chunk is all about the covenant. And it goes from chapter... To chapter 50. So, from a 30,000 foot view, Genesis is about creation and the covenant. What are we going to do? Change my batteries out? These are brand new? All right. That's that. It's all right. It's okay. So, from a 30,000 foot view, Genesis is about creation and the covenant. And right at the transition point of those two overarching themes, we get introduced to this guy named Abraham, right? Right at the end of chapter 11, we got introduced to this guy named Abraham. And I personally cannot overstate the importance of this man in the history of the world. One of the most influential men in human history. Three, the three largest religions in the world all trace their ancestry back to this man, Abraham. And for the past 10 chapters, we have studied 25 years of Abraham's life. It has been 25 years since God called him from Ur of the Chaldeans. I might be a little hot and that's why I'm getting loud. I already know when I'm, when I'm loud in my intro, you know what's coming, right? So it might be clipping. It has been 25 years since God promised to give him a son. 25 years since God promised to give Abraham a son. We have witnessed Abraham place his living faith in the one true living God. And we have watched as God has been gracious to Abraham over and over in spite of his sin. Now, let me just put this in perspective. Can you imagine God showing up to you when you're in your late 70s and telling you that you're going to have a son? (laughs) Anybody close is like, no, right? And not only that, because this is the way God works. I said this before, 70-year-old guy, he might be like, yeah, I bet I got it in me, right? He's like, I could probably make this happen, right? Right? But what God chooses to do in his sovereign plan is to tell them when they're 70 and then wait until he's 100. Wait until she's 90. We've got 25 years between the promise and the promise fulfilled. 25 years. It's a long time to wait on God to fulfill his word. See, for 25 years, the plot has been thickening. The tension has been getting higher and higher. We've been getting anxious and awaiting for God to to fulfill His promise. 
and Sarah have already tried to take things into their own hands once. Like, too difficult. He got too tough to bear. The, the waiting was too strong. Oh, Sarah looks at Abraham and looks at her Egyptian servant, Hagar, and says, Abraham, sleep with Hagar. We need a son. I can't wait any longer. Maybe God wants us to take things in our own hands. So they do that. Abraham sleeps with Hagar. Hagar conceives and gives birth to a son. And, but God, if you remember, she got sent away. She ran away. And God shows up to Hagar and says, Hagar, no, I want you to go back. I'm going to do something special with this son too. But he says this. He says, your son's not the son of the promise. Your son's not the son of the covenant, but God will use your son. He will cause, and and he said, I'll go into that a little bit later. And then he told Sarah, Sarah, Ishmael is not the son of the promise. Your own son will be, and you are to name him Isaac, if we remember, which means laughter, right? Alas, at the promise of God. There's no way this is happening. I'm 90 years old. How could this possibly take place? How could I, a 90-year-old woman, nurse a child? And God says, God kind of gets the last laugh, as we like to say, and says, his name will be Isaac, which means laughter. So chapter after chapter and year after year has gone by. And here we have old Abraham, 100 years old, and Sarah sitting at 90 years old and still no child. 25 years, all promise, no child until today. Genesis chapter 21 is all about promises kept. When God makes promises, he keeps his promises. They may seem delayed. They may seem painfully slow. They may take a lot longer than what we expect. But God never fails to keep his promise. Many of us need to be reminded of that this morning. It may be delayed. You may be walking through a dark season. You may be in a difficult time. But God keeps his promises. He's a promise-keeping God. If he says it, it's as good as done. And that's what we're going to study today. So I'm going to jump in. We're going to jump in. Chapter 21, verse 1. Follow along with us. We read from... Uh, the ESV, English Standard Version. You can follow along um, on your Bible in the liturgy if you go to the Version app. Let's go ahead and read. The Lord visited Sarah, and look at this, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah, look at this, as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham and his son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. All right, now look, Moses is trying to get something across to us. If you're at the Bible 101 class this week, one of the things that we look for as we're observing the text is things that are repeated. In two verses, we have this repeated three separate times. God did what he said he was going to do. God promised, God fulfilled. He wants us to pick up on this. 
Three times in the first two verses, we are reminded that God did to Sarah what he promised he would do. God caused a 90-year-old woman. Oh, I love that word, cause. He caused. He made it happen. It was effective by his hands. God caused a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man to have sex, which might be a miracle in itself, and then to conceive a child. God kept his promise. It was all grace. It was an absolute miracle. There was, Sarah wasn't like, you know, maybe this was me. She was barren up until this moment. This was a move of sovereign grace. God never fails. God never falters. God's word is as good as done. If he said it, he will do it. Man, this, should, this is just going to give me, give, I hope this gives us confidence today. This is meant to show us the absolute power and the absolute sovereignty of God. He brought about the promised son in the exact way he wanted, at the exact time that he wanted, and in the exact place that he wanted. Every detail was exactly the way God wanted it. This should give us great confidence when we ourselves come to the scriptures, when we feast upon God's word memorize and we study and we pray through it. This should give us great confidence. When God says that he will do something, it is going to happen. Faith is us taking him at his word. Faith is us saying, you are trustworthy. You're worth everything I have. You're worth me leaning. Right now, if I put all my weight on this podium, I'm putting my faith in this podium. I'm putting everything that I am. If this podium fails, I fall on my face. That's what faith is. I'm leaning completely on God. If he be a liar, I'm doomed. Faith is us taking him at his word. Faith is us clinging Onto his word and saying, I know that he is sovereign and that he is utterly trustworthy, even though it might take, be taking longer than I expected, he will keep his promises. And that is exactly how we see Abraham responding to God's graciousness in life. Look at verse 3. Abraham called in the name of Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, for everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham and Sarah that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. See, God does what he said he would do. God fulfills his promise. And then Abraham responds in faith. Abraham responds in faith by first, first thing, he names his son Isaac. God told him, you're going to have a son a year from now and you are to name him Isaac. <laughs> right? 
That's just funny to me. God shows up and his name means laughter, right? Okay, you're going to have a, oh, you laugh? You laugh? Okay, you're going to have a son in a year and I want you to name him Giggle. Okay, right? It's pretty fun. I just think it's funny to me, right? And so the son's born and everybody's expecting, what are you going to name him? Is Abraham, you know, like, are we doing something like patriarchal? Uh, I'll name him Giggle. You, what? Giggle, <laughs> right? So he responds in faith by naming his son Isaac, which means laughter. Okay? People are laughing at this. Second thing he does is he responds by God's graciousness given to him, and he circumcises his son on the eighth day. Okay? Like God told him to. God, we've, we've talked about the covenant a little bit in a few chapters back. This was the sign and seal of the covenant of faith that you are God's people. So Abraham does it. God, God promises and provides and God keeps his promise. So how does Abraham respond? Abraham responds in faith. He names him what he's supposed to name him and he performs the covenant ceremony that he's supposed to do. This is how it's supposed to work. God moves first, God acts, God causes, God gives grace, God gives faith, and we respond with, our, with placing our active living faith that he give, gave us back into his work and obeying him. It's the way it's supposed to work. God keeps his promise and we respond to them in faith. Parents, there's a lot going on in this text, Okay. And it's important for us to recognize what's going on in this um, circumcision ceremony. Abraham is acknowledging that his son is a gift from God. And that accepting that gift comes with some requirements. God has told Abraham in chapter 18 that he must, listen to this, parents. In chapter 18, God said this, you must command Somebody say the word command. You must command your children and your household after you to keep the way of the Lord. Not ask nicely, not hope, not wish. You are to command your children to walk in the way of the Lord. Strong, strong language. And this covenant ceremony of circumcision is one of the ways, one of the ways that Abraham is commanding his son to serve the Lord. Now listen to this. I can get in a lot of trouble here and that's fine. Abraham is saying, listen, I'm just gonna tell you this. If you grew up in a church that's very, been very soft and, you know, I affectionately return them, uh, you know, refer to them the way uh, Douglas Wilson does as evangelifish type churches. Okay. They're just kind of appeal to the masses and, and they don't really say anything too harsh and, and they don't want to, they kind of want to bounce around and listen, you're, you're probably going to have a problem with what I'm going to say in a minute. I, I grew up the way that I grew up. I had a problem with what I was about to say. Okay. I'm going to write a paper on what I'm talking about in the next, within the next month or so, this paper will be coming out and I'll clarify everything. I'll hopefully answer the questions that you're going to have, but I want you to listen to this. Okay. For thousands of years, this has been going on and this has been taking place. But if you grew up in an evangelifish type of environment, it's going to seem foreign to you. Okay. So I'm just going to go there. Okay. 
Abraham is performing this rite, this covenant ceremony of circumcision. Okay? He, and this is one of his ways of, of commanding his son to serve the Lord. Abraham is saying, God, you gave me this son, and now I am giving him back to you. Listen. If, everybody say if, if he walks with you by faith, let his sinful flesh be removed from him like the skin of his foreskin that I'm removing now. You hear that? If this son places his faith in you and responds to the grace that you've been, that you've given him. If this kid puts his faith in you in the future, let his flesh be removed like the foreskin is being removed. Okay. But there's a dual aspect to this covenant as well. That's the blessing. Every covenant, there's a blessing and there's a curse for disobedience. So in this covenant ceremony, Abraham is also saying to his son, If he fails to respond to your grace by placing his faith in you, he will be cut off and removed from his people, from your people, just like his foreskin has been cut off and removed from his body. So in the covenant ceremony of circumcision, there's a blessing and there's a curse. This is to remind the son as he grows up. That he goes back and says, son, your flesh was removed from you, pointing to uh, as a sign and a seal for what will happen by faith if you place your faith in the grace that God's given you. But if you fail to respond by faith, you, will, you yourself will be cut off from God's people. You yourself will be removed from God's covenant people. So Abraham here is responding by faith To God's grace. He's covenanting himself and his son. He's leading his family in the worship of God. He's following through as a father. Dads, your number one job is not to put a roof over your kid's head. It's to show them how to worship God by responding with faith in his grace. And so Abraham is saying, God, you followed through. You fulfilled your promise. You did what you said you would do. You gave me this incredible and gracious gift. And I will respond by training him up in your ways. I will, res- I will raise this kid, reminding him that he's a covenant child. Reminding him that he's been cut. Reminding him that his flesh has been removed. Reminding him when he's a teenager and he's wanting to rebel. Son, do you remember that I cut your flesh? Do you remember the promise that we made to God? Do you remember that your flesh was removed? Do you remember that you have to place your active faith in a living God if you want to receive the blessing of that almighty God? And do you remember, son, if you choose to be rebellious, if you choose to wander from this living of God, you will be cut off from God's people. Raising a kid with a covenantal understanding. Raising a child with an understanding of the covenant of grace. Now, thankfully, in the new covenant that Christ purchased for us, we do not have to circumcise our kids, ourselves, on the eighth day. All right? It's good news. But God has given us another sign and seal of the covenant, and that is baptism. 
And in many denominations, parents baptize their kids as a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. Just like circumcision, baptism is a mark of faith. It's a sign and seal. Paul tells us circumcision is nothing. The circumcision of the flesh was just pointing to the circumcision of the heart that was needed. No one said, Abraham didn't circumcise his son and say, okay, son, you're saved. Great. He said, this is pointing to what has to happen by faith. Baptism is the same. Just like circumcision... Baptism is a mark of faith. It is a commitment from the parents to raise their child in the ways of faith and in the ways of the Lord. It is a message to the child as well. Just like how your body has been washed by baptism, so must your soul be cleansed or be baptized by the blood of Christ. It's saying to the child, child, if you place your faith in God... Listen, if you place your faith in God, all your sins will be washed away. God has been gracious to you by placing you in this household of faith, of confessing believers. And now it's up to you. Now you must respond to him by placing your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. Baptizing your child does not guarantee that he will be saved. Just like Abraham circumcises both his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, but only Isaac received salvation. Paul goes on to tell us that circumcision was just pointing us forward to what really needed to happen by faith in in the circumcision of the heart. But baptizing your child is one way that confessing believers throughout the history of the church have responded to God's gracious gift to them and they've responded in faith to say, okay, we are taking this serious. We are coveting together as the body of Christ. We will raise this child in the way that he should go. So God has kept his promises and now Abraham and Sarah are keeping theirs. So this is great news, right? After 25 years of prolonged, this thing is just dragging on, right? This story's just been stretching on and on and on. After 25 years and a whole lot of detours, Abraham and Sarah have their promised son. The son through whom Jesus will come. And this joyful and happy scene, this fulfillment of 25 years of prophecy and 10 chapters of Scripture, this fulfillment of the prophecy takes up approximately seven verses. Right? Life. Every great moment has a difficult one on its heels. The brightest stars shine against the darkest backdrops. Because of sin, our lives are full of good times and bad times. Joy and turmoil. Victory and temptation. 
And this amazing scene of promises fulfilled is about to be darkened by Ishmael's mocking laugh. Look at verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned. Hold on, I might as well just stop here and tell you where I'm headed. If some of you just got thrown for a loop with that whole child baptism thing. Um, we're, I'm, I, like I said, I'm writing a paper on this. It's going to be a position paper on it. It's going to be coming out in the next few weeks, latest a month. And we're, I'm just going to, I'll give you the, let the cat out of the bag right away. We're going to hold a baptism position at Sacred City Church. So for people who can convinced through scripture of the covenantal na- nature of baptism um, and they want to baptize their child, we're, we're going to do that. We will baptize their child. Um, for those who, who want to remain um, professing, you know, conversion baptism, we will continue to, we always do that. We'll continue to, to baptize those who are converted to faith. All right. There's a lot of, th- there's a lot of argument that goes both ways. Um, there's a lot of great men on both sides of the debate, the strongest theologians of our day on both sides of the debate. So we're going we're gonna to walk a tightrope and we're going to hold both things together. We're going to try to hold both positions together and not fight and not argue and agree to disagree on certain things. Uh, Paul tells us that baptism isn't of first importance. The gospel is of first importance. So if we're united in the gospel, we can, have, we can hold other things in open hands. We're closed-handed on the gospel. We're open-handed and other things. This is an open-handed issue. Okay. So I'm going to clarify a lot. Uh, what, what people, you know, we've invented things in the church. We've invented dedication ceremonies. There's no dedication ceremony in the Bible. Um, a lot of us grew up with dedication ceremonies. Um, it's kind of wanting to take child baptism and kind of use it <laughs> without actually sprinkling it on a child or baptizing a child. So that's, that's, I'm going to, I'm going to let, I'm going to let that cat out of the bag right now. I'm gonna let you know where we're headed. If you want to ask me questions, there's going to be tons of time for that. And you can feel free to feel free to do that. So I just wanted to let it out of the bag. Let's go ahead and, and jump back in chapter or verse eight. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son for the son of this slave woman. should not even be the heir with my son, Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Okay, stop. So this is what's going on. Isaac now we, in that one little paragraph, we, Isaac is three or four years old. Okay, it took him a little longer back then to wean a child. He's three or four years old, and Ishmael is 16 years old, 15 or 16 years old. Okay, and they're having a big party for Isaac to sell. It's probably on his birthday, a big feast to celebrate the fact that he's been weaned. Okay, and Ishmael comes in, and Ishmael starts mocking him. Ishmael starts laughing at him. It's funny how this term laughter just in the life of Isaac, okay? And Ishmael starts mocking him and starts laughing him, all right? Now, this might have been Ishmael just making fun of his name, okay? It could have been, there's a lot of disagreement among commentators. It could have been he's just making fun of his laugh, but it's clear to me there's a little bit more going on because Sarah flips her wig, right? Right? 
Now listen, this is just a woman scorned, right? She says, get that child of the slave woman out of my face. Get him out. She doesn't even use names. She's been living with Ishmael for 16 years. She's been living with Hagar for 17 years. She doesn't even use their name. Get the son of the slave woman. Get the slave. Get him out. That kid, that child, that boy will have nothing to do with my son's inheritance. Pretty harsh, right? Now listen. Controversial topic number two. Before we start to feel sorry for Ishmael, let us remember what God said about Ishmael before Ishmael was even born. When Hagar was in the desert, God, Jesus, showed up to Hagar and said, Hey, hey, listen, I want you to go back. I want you to, listen, the baby in your womb, it's a boy. You're going to name him Ishmael. And this is what, that's what he said. The baby in your belly, he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. If you, do you remember this? His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. Before he had done anything good or bad, God had prophesied and promised, Hagar, the woman in your womb, he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. But, this is very tricky, God still promised to make Ishmael into a great nation. He said, hey, I'm going to bless you too. I'm going to bless Ishmael too. But this blessing, now listen, this blessing was a physical blessing only. It was more than common grace. You know, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. A wicked sinner plants a seed and waters it and it grows just as fast as a saint. Right? That's common grace. This is more than common grace because God looks at Hagar and says, No, I'm going to bless Ishmael in a special way. Not in a saving way, not in a covenantal way, but I'll make him into a great nation anyway. God chose Isaac, but God rejected Ishmael for salvation history. Jesus would come through the line of Isaac. Jesus would come through the line of the promise, not the line of human scheming. God had promised to still make Ishmael into a great nation, but this blessing was a physical blessing and not a spiritual. It would bring no spiritual fruit. And look what happens in verse 11. And this thing, the thing, was very displeasing to Abraham on account of its son. Think about this. For the past 15 or 16 years, Abraham has been a father to Ishmael. Ishmael, for 13 of those years, Ishmael was Abraham's one and only son, his firstborn son. And now God's promise has come true. Not only has Isaac been born to him and Isaac has been weaned, which is great news, but Ishmael is also a wild donkey of a man. The promise, that promise has came true as well. Here's another promise 
kept. So not only was Isaac born through the promise, through a miracle, that promise was kept. Ishmael is also an ass. That promise has been kept too. And Ishmael, 16 16 years old, realizes that's that's the son of the promise. That's the son everybody's been talking about. That's the son that that God and and my dad has prophesied that the salvation of the world would come through that guy. My little brother, Giggles. Right? And so Ishmael, listen, in this moment now, Ishmael is not just rejecting his brother. He's not just rejecting his father. He's rejecting the covenant of grace. That God can choose whom he will. God can save whom he will. Ishmael, by laughing at the son of the promise, is rejecting the promise of grace. And Sarah says, get that son of yours out of my face. Get him out of the camp. He's not going to have anything to do with Isaac. And now Abraham, it says, this displeased Abraham. Can you imagine? His firstborn son. Get get rid of him. Now listen, since the Garden of Eden, if you've been following along through the book of Genesis, listen, you can go back and listen to all of our podcasts. They're all for free. Okay, you get what you pay for, but hey, you can go back and listen to them, all right, if you want to. Since now listen, and since the Garden of Eden, since we're second or third week that we're starting this series in Genesis. We've been talking about these two streams of mankind. There's two streams of humanity since the fall. The seed of Christ and the seed of Satan. Those who respond to God by faith in His grace and those who do not. The elect and the non-elect. Believers and unbelievers. And here in this text... God's pattern continues. Theologically, this is called predestination or election, and it freaks a lot of people out. I understand that. But for me, it is the grounds for all of my security and my salvation. It is a warm blanket for me. I know there is nothing good dwelling in me. I know that I was dead in my sin. And what could a dead man do to be saved? A dead man can't call out for rescue. A dead man can't wave his arm to be thrown a life preserver. A dead man sinks to the bottom. And for a person to be saved, it requires a savior to dive in, to pay the price, to rescue, to pull them to safety. And we're dead in our trespasses and sin, not sick. Only God in his sovereign grace could save me. And listen, the only way he would The only way he would ever save me 
is if he did it by complete grace of his own free will because there's nothing good in me. I'm weak, I'm frail, I fail often. My good deeds are constantly mixed with bad motives. Nothing I do is pure. So the only way he would save me is by sheer grace. And this is what Paul, exactly what Paul tells us. I want you to have, you turn your Bibles in Romans chapter 9. I could go to several different places. I could go to Romans 9, Romans 11, Ephesians 2. I could go all over the place. But I'm going to go to Romans 9 because Romans 9 specifically refers to this text. Romans 9, verses 6. When you're there, say there. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Listen, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Okay, it's not saying right now, all Jews aren't Jews. All circumcised people aren't really circumcised. What we talked about, all baptized folk aren't really baptized. Just because you've been dunked in water does not mean you've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean that. Okay, let's keep reading. And not all are children of Abraham because they're offspring. But look, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, look, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, somebody say nothing, either good or bad. Look, he just clears it up for us. He makes, he just stamps it right on her forehead so we get it in order. So for this reason, that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It's God's will that prevails. So there's two types of people. There's two streams of humanity. The elect, the not elect, those who place their faith in God, those who don't, those who believe, those who don't. And that's still true today. There's two streams of humanity in this room today. Not churchgoers and non-churchgoers. Not good people and bad people. Hope you don't hear that. Those who respond to the grace by faith and those who try to make it on their own. So God has sovereignly chosen the son, Isaac, chosen Isaac to be the son of the promise and not Ishmael. And then God takes it one step farther. This actually shocks me. This actually shocks me. Turn it back. Turn back to Genesis 21, verse 11. And and, and this thing was very displeasing to Abraham, right? Like, we get it. You have to send your your firstborn son away. That's going to displease you. But what does God say to Abraham? Be not displeased. Because of the boy and because of your slave woman. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also. Because he's your offspring. Look at this. 
This is shocking to me. It looks like Sarah sinning. It looks like Sarah's being evil stepmother. This is like Cinderella stuff, right? Get that child of the woman out of here. And God goes, oh, don't be, don't be sad. Don't be displeased, Abraham. Yep, yep. She's right. Send him on. Tell him to kick rocks. Listen, oh my goodness. This right here is one of those things that I feel like can change your life. God's saying, I know you just sent away your son. But you you are obeying me. I know it's tough. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But you are obeying me. What's the chief end of man? What's the purpose? What's the point? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. See, God is teaching Abraham a valuable lesson here. He's teaching him. Now listen to this. If you teach one thing, you teach your kid this. It is more pleasurable, pleasurable to obey God than it is to try to keep something you think you want or need. There is more pleasure found in obeying God. Pleasure. Not white knuckle obedience. Not staunch religiosity. There's more pleasure found in obeying God and clinging to something. This, I get this all the time. A couple, you know, they, they're, in, they're in love and, and they want to live together or they want to sleep together before they're married. And they, they see sex is a good thing. I love this person. They, they, they want to reinterpret God's rules. And I say, listen, obeying God is better than premarital sex. I'm going to tell you. I promise you, it is. But they don't, so many times, they don't believe me. They don't believe me. They don't place their faith in the word of God. They don't place their faith in the Bible. They think they can find more pleasure outside of God than in God who created pleasure. When people struggle with giving, when God says, be a cheerful giver and be a sacrificial giver, not just give 10%, be sacrificial. Give until it hurts. Give so much that people look and go, what is different about that guy? What is different about that family? They're not trying to keep up with the Jones. They're sacrificially giving. They're willing to live a below average lifestyle to increase their standard of giving. Oh, people push back on that. Just like the rich young ruler. Jesus says, go sell it all and give to the poor and then come follow me. Jesus is saying, there's more pleasure in following me. There's more satisfaction in following me. You'll find more hope and joy and fulfillment in following me, not in your treasures. And it says the rich young ruler, what does he do? He walks away sad because his hope, his identity, his meaning, his satisfaction, his pleasure was found in his riches more than in the God of all riches. 
Listen, this is beautiful here. When you're looking through the eyes that God gives you, the eyes of faith, you see God as the only all-satisfying treasure. He's not just our way out of hell. He's our chief end. Like the psalmist says, his love is better than life itself. And this is what true faith, right here in this text, this is what true faith looks like. Faith causes us to lock on to God as our most desirable object. Faith causes us to lock on to God as our most desirable object. He's the most valuable thing in all the universe. That's what it means that God is to be glorified. He's got the most weight. He carries the most significance. He has the most meaning. He's the only thing that can satisfy us to our shoes. And seeing through the eyes of faith is, means we're seeing God like that. So if God does say to you right now, Sign away the deed to your house. Give it all to the church. Go be a missionary in India. You would see him as so all satisfying. You would say, oh my goodness, God is calling me into deeper waters. God is calling me into something new where I get more of him and I can't wait to do it. When God is saying to Abraham, send away your son, send away your firstborn son. He's not taking away something like he's not going to fill it. He's not taking away a toy. From a ch- like you take away a toy from a child. He's not doing that. He's saying, Abraham, I have something better for you. I am your all satisfying treasure. I am weaning your heart from this thing that you wanted so bad. I'm weaning your heart from it. Will you find your satisfaction in me? Oh my goodness. And this is faith. Where do you find your satisfaction? Where do you find the meaning of your life? What do you hold right now in your life that if God asked for it, you'd say, no, I won't give it to you. That's where we need to say, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Lord, help me believe. That's why Jesus looked at his disciples all the time and said, you have little faith. You lack faith. You faithless generation. You faithless people. We are faithless so often. This right here, it takes a lot of faith. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that it's impossible to please God without faith. And by this, listen to this. It's not just a faith, faithful moment in your past that, well, I've put my faith in Christ when I was 12 years old and now ever. No, no, no. Living by faith. How are we living by faith? How are we placing our active faith in the grace of God day by day by day by day? That means if you're living your life in a way right now that you are making your decisions without the word of God. You are making your decisions by just what seems right to you. 
Bible says that way ends in death and that way does not please God. You can be financially frugal. You could be making very wise business decisions. You could be parenting out of all the wisdom that you've gained from your parents and their parents and everybody else. And you could be doing all of those things in such a way as to be absent with faith. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Scripture says that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. Do you? Are you living a life right now that demands a gospel explanation? That the people would look and go, you are radically others-centered. You are radically God-centered. You are radically generous with your time. You are radically, you know, your people are in your life in such a way. You are radically, you are a radical servant. Does your life make sense to your neighbor? It shouldn't. Listen, what does it mean to walk by faith? Do you cling to God when things get tough? Cling to him. Do you fall on his word when your marriage gets tough and your kids push back or money gets tight? It is impossible to please God without faith. I'm telling you, this has just hit me hard this week. There is a way for me to even do ministry without faith. Just provide a nice service. Don't step on any toes. Keep everybody comfortable. Have some good songs, a short sermon, dip the bread. Out we go. God forbid. God forbid that I become a man who just goes through the motions, who takes a salary, who waits for retirement. I mean, I think this text is calling Sacred City Church to a life of radical faith. A life of unexplainable lifestyles that people look and they say, what happened? And you could say, the grace of God. The grace of God appeared. Christ came into my life and he saved me when I was not looking for him and I was walked away from him. God saved me. Or God in his grace has placed me in a a believing family and they raised me in the way that I should go. And I responded when God revealed himself to me, I responded to that. And you know what? Christ has been given to me and now I just give my life back to him. The gospel happened. Jesus happened. I think we need to be pushing this in our missional communities. I think we need to be pushing this through our fight clubs. I think we need to be pushing this on Sunday morning. Don't get comfortable. Don't settle in. God calls us all to operate and live all of our life from 10 years old to 100 years old by faith. By faith. I'm going to take a step. And I'm trusting that God's going to get me. That God's got me covered. So God says, send your firstborn away. Send your firstborn son away into the desert. And Abraham obeys. I want you to see this. God is warming up Abraham here. This is a precursor. 
I've never thought of this before until I was reading this text this, this week. This is a precursor for what's happening next week between Abraham and Isaac. Seeing and savoring God. Right here, man. Abraham, can you see and savor God as your all-satisfying treasure? Can you do it? And Abraham does, and he sends his son away. Now, listen to this. This quote from John Piper struck me this week. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied in God. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied in God. Sin is what you do when you want something other than God. Sin is what you do when you place something other than God as the chief end of your life. Be it performance, be it sex, be it pleasure. Whatever you do, whatever you place before God becomes sin. Now, we've got a long ways to go in this chapter, but I'm not going to get to it all. I don't think I need to get to it all. What I want to see from this is that there are still, still, ancient biblical text, and it's still true today, there's still only two ways to live. You can live by faith, or you can try to make it on your own. The Bible calls the former the way of the Spirit, and, he call, and the Bible calls the latter the works of the flesh or the law. I want you to go to one more scripture. We're going to go to Galatians chapter 4. We're going there because, again, it refers specifically to this chapter. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21. When you're there, say there. Okay. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may, look at this, this is crazy. This may be interpreted allegorically. These women represent two covenants, two ways of living, two ways of relating to God. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Let me just get through this. It's going to be difficult, but I'll unpack it. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like I are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted, that's Ishmael, Ishmael persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free. Okay. A little confusing. Hang with me here. There are two, there are still two ways to live your life. Can I just, 
remove a myth from you? Every single person on the planet worships something. Every single person on the planet finds their significance somewhere. Every person on the planet finds ultimate meaning somewhere. And there's only two places to do that. You can live by faith in God, like Abraham and Isaac. They don't trust their natural senses. They trust God. What was impossible impossible with man, God did. Or the other way, you can trust yourself. You can lean on your own understanding. You can try to make it on your own. And like Ishmael and Hagar, Ishmael was the son of human scheming. He, was, he wasn't the miracle child. It took no faith for Abraham to sleep with Hagar. <laughs> right? That's human ingenuity. That's common sense. And these two examples are used by the Apostle Paul as allegories of possible ways to relate to God, of possible ways to live your life. Every, this is going to, you might be shocked by this statement. Every person on earth seeks salvation. They seek it in God by faith or they seek it in something else. They seek peace. They seek eternal happiness. They seek meaning. They seek significance. They seek something to give their life ultimate purpose. Every person does. And Paul's saying, just like today, just like back then, there's two ways to live. By faith in God or by faith in yourself. Listen to this quote from Martin Luther from his book On Christian Liberty. For what is impossible for you by all the works of the law, which are many and yet useless, you shall fulfill in an easy and summary way through faith. Because God the Father has made everything to depend on faith so that whosoever has it has all things and who has it not has nothing. Say it again. For what is impossible for you by all the works of the law, which are many and yet useless. That means if you are trying to relate to God in your own, in the faith in your own works, you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to get there. You're never going to have enough sex. Okay? If sex is your God, you will never have enough sex. Look at Hugh Hefner. Never will he be satisfied. Never will he have enough. He always needs more. He always needs someone new. He always needs that next thrill. It's useless. Martin Luther says that the works of the law, which are many and yet useless, we can never earn it. Now listen. You shall fulfill in an easy and summary way through faith. Because God the Father has made everything depend on so that whosoever has it has all things. And whosoever has it not has nothing. The standards of God are impossible. If you're trying to meet them on your own, this is how you're going to know. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be constant, constantly anxious. 
you're going to be depressed when you fail to, to live up to some expectation. And you're going to be really proud when you, when, you, when, you, when you actually accomplish it. It's a cycle, constant frustration, trying to prove yourself to the world that you're somebody over and over and over and over. It's frustrating. Listen, how do you live your life? I'm not asking, have you some way back in the past, you made a commitment to Jesus Christ and you placed your faith in him. How do you actively live your life from day to day to day? Is it more like this? Is it more like trying to find meaning and trying to find purpose and try to be good enough and try to outdo your coworkers and try to, is it this performance or is it by faith where by faith in Christ's work on your behalf, you receive all of that in a complete and summary way by faith. How do you live your life? Are you currently living by faith? Are you living by your own effort? If you're living by your own effort, you're going to be frustrated. Ishmael is the adversary for the life lived on its own terms. The life lived through human effort. This could be religious effort, trying to read enough and pray enough and attend enough worship gatherings. You know, Ishmael will become the father of Islam. Very interesting thing, right where he gets sent out here is Mecca. Ishmael gets sent out in the desert in Mecca. Many years later, one of his descendants, Muhammad, will, will, will kind of take the Old Testament, rewrite it, make Ishmael the son of the promise, and Isaac the son of human scheming. Literally takes out Isaac and puts in Ishmael, and it will build Mecca on this same spot right here. Because so you wonder why there's some turmoil and there's, you know, fighting in the Middle East between Jewish and Muslim countries right here. They're fighting over who's the, who's the son of the promise. Was it Isaac or was it Ishmael? Now, so, so this could be religious effort or it could be irreligious. People get shocked when I say this. You, you could be a legalist without being religious. You'd be trying to earn your way to heaven without being religious. It makes no difference. This is man's attempt to find meaning and satisfaction on their own. And it just so happened that I found this, I read this amazing article this week. Um, if, you, if you were like me in your, in your uh, grade school, you, I had really one hero at the moment or when I was in grade school. And everybody, everybody, want to be, want to be, want to be like Mike. Right? I had him on my post poster on the wall. I somehow convinced my mom in third grade to spend $100 on Michael Jordan 23 basketball shoes, right? I'm like three foot tall, right? I'm, I'm granny styling my free throws. The shoes ain't helping, right? But I convinced it. I got them. And if you watched ESPN at any point in this last week, uh, you know that Michael Jordan turned 50. And I want to read some of this to you. With six NBA titles... Five MVPs, 10 scoring titles, 14 all-star appearances, many other feats posterized on my childhood bedroom wall. Jordan's legacy on the basketball court is unmatched. But life, particularly since his final retirement in 2003, hasn't been so pristine. 
In anticipation of Jordan's 50th birthday, ESPN senior writer Tom, uh, Wright Thompson spent number 23. <clears throat> this is going to be crazy. Thompson's piece pulsates with the sense that Jordan isn't happy. That's what Michael said. I would give up everything right now to go back and play the game of basketball. When asked how he replaces it, he's 50, Jordan simply says, you don't. He just learned to live with it. For almost three decades on basketball's supreme stage, Jordan lived for the next challenge, the next challenger. Naysayers became friends for they brought the nightly fuel that reignited his drive to perform, to conquer, to vindicate his name. The man, it seems, has left the court, but the addictions won't leave the man. You won't believe this. I I didn't believe it. Jordan is at the center of several overlapping universes. At the top of the billion-dollar Jordan brand at Nike, at the top of the Bobcats of his own company, with dozens of employees and contractors on the payroll, in case anyone in the inner circle forgets who's in charge, they only have to recall their code names given to them by the private security team assigned to overseas tripped, overseas trips. SD is called Venom. George is Butler. Yvette is Harmony. And Jordan is called Yahweh, a Hebrew word for God. Jordan said, my ego is so big now that I expect certain things. For 30 years, I've been the most important person in every room I walk in. He says, my self-esteem has always been tied directly to the game. Without it, I feel adrift. In his 2009 Hall of Fame speech, Jordan called the game of basketball his refuge, the place where I've gone, where I needed to find comfort and peace. This is his question. He asks, how can I enjoy the next 20 years of my life without so much of this consuming me? How can I find peace away from the game of basketball? How can I find peace away from the game of basketball? The aging legend asks, Michael, you never had peace. Triumph and fame, yes, but not peace. James Naismith invented a game that brought you a sense of purpose. It brought you a sense of value. It brought you a sense of calm. But it was only that, a sense. It was a counterfeit of the real thing. You will never find life outside the game for the same reason you never found life inside the game. It's not there. The peace you seek isn't on the basketball court or a golf course or in the back room of a high-stakes poker game, but on a little hill outside Jerusalem. There, Yahweh incarnate hung in the place of sinners, hung in the place of wannabe Yahwehs like you and me. You've gained the whole world and found it lacking, Mike. Don't lose your soul.
How can I find peace away from the game of basketball? How can you find, how can we all find peace away from our own effort? There's only one place. And that's the same place Abraham and Isaac found their peace and refuge in the God of the Bible and in his gospel. The Bible is all about God's promises kept. God told Adam and Eve that there would be animosity between the two streams of humanity and there have been ever since. God said that he would send a deliverer who would be wounded by Satan, but who would crush the enemy's skull in the process. That deliverer came through the promise of God, through the line of Abraham, through the line of Isaac, and was born to a virgin named Mary many years later. Jesus was the son of God, the true son of the promise, and he lived the perfect life of faith that Abraham, Isaac, Michael, Jordan, you and me fail to live on a daily basis. Jesus was perfect. He lived all his days seeing and savoring God the Father as the chief end of man. He did what we could not. And God, through his gospel, offers his life, the life of Christ. He he offers it to us as a substitution through faith. If you turn, if you turn from your human effort, Michael, you're not God. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Mom, you're not Yahweh in your home. You can't control your kids. You can't stop them from sinning. You can't schedule and discipline sin completely out of their life. You're not Yahweh. And if you're living that life like Michael Jordan, you're always going to be unhappy. You're going to want to run back to the production mindset. Just get me busy. When I'm busy, I don't think how bad my life is. Or you can rest. You can have it all by grace. A perfect record by grace. If you turn from your human effort, Put all your trust in the promises of God by faith. All, this is amazing. All that was good in Christ will be counted as your own. This is the only place a person can find rest from their work. Luther again, for his righteousness rises above all the sin of all men and his life is more powerful than all death and his salvation is more unconquerable than all hell. But this only comes through a living faith in Jesus Christ. Living faith. Let us come to the table this morning. And let us rest from our labors. Let us turn from our work and let us embrace his work. For Christ on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And the cup, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. This is the blood that will be shed and spilled for you. Drink it.
Father, I pray this morning, those who do not know you, those who are, are trying to build a life of meaning based upon just being a good person or being a moral person or, or trying to be really good in their profession or being a really good parent or being really organized or really productive, all these good things. But Father, they're reaping the consequences of that false God. Anxious, they're stressed, they're impatient, they don't have peace, they don't have rest. I pray they would hear the good news of the gospel, that they can be given all things in Christ. They can be given all things by grace, through faith. And I pray that you would gift them that faith. And if they're, we all struggle with unbelief, that we could say, Father, Help us in our unbelief. We want to believe. Help us in our unbelief. Help us see and savor Jesus Christ as the all-satisfying treasure of our souls. Help us live with that in our, in our eyes. Father, I pray that we would place our faith in your promise. That you will give us grace upon grace upon grace. You've been faithful in our past and our present, and you will be faithful in our future. I pray that those who have been walking in religion, those who have been walking in their own ways, would turn towards you and you would do the supernatural in their heart. Let them hear the words of grace and the words of love from a heavenly father who's paid their debt. And all their expenses have been paid and respond with faith. You are a good and gracious God who deserves all glory and all praise. In your son's name, amen.